The Fanboy, episode 103. Everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 103 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? I'd like to open up today's show with this quote from J.J. Abrams regarding Star Wars, its reception, and all of that good stuff. You know, he was asked a question about The Last Jedi and the very divisive, polarizing response it got and the lasting impact of that response. And here's what he had to say He said, The reaction to Star Wars, the increased attacks, the increased negativity, the fandom menace, as they call it, you know, that is not unique to Star Wars, obviously. And I think we live in a time where if you're not being divisive, if you're not creating something that's aversive quickbait, sometimes you don't quite feel like you're playing the game. I always loved Star Wars because it's got a huge heart. Did I always believe in and agree with every single thing that happened in every movie, whether it was the prequels or the original trilogy? No. But do I love Star Wars? Yes. So for me, I hope, and I'm sure naively, we can return to a time where we give things a bit more latitude. We don't have to agree with every single thing to love something. I don't know anyone who has a spouse or a partner or any family member or any friend who loves and agrees with every single thing that the person is and does. We have to return, I think, to nuance and acceptance. And so I feel like, as a Star Wars fan, do I love every single thing about each of the movies? No. But do I love Star Wars? Hell yes, I do. So a couple things about that. First of all, amen, yes, I love Star Wars just like he does. And even despite the ups and downs... Even despite my critiques of The Last Jedi and some of the stuff that I wasn't thrilled with there, I am still a diehard Star Wars fan, and I've actually loved a great ton of what's come out, but that's actually besides the point. Because for me, what I really want to you know, circle back to here is his, his use of the phrase, the fandom menace, as they call it. I've never heard anyone use that phrase before, you know, that, that take off on the phantom menace to describe what fandom has become lately. But I think it's brilliant. (laughs) I mean, I've been talking about this subject on this show and on others for over a year now about the fact that fans are getting so venomous, so toxic. Fandom is becoming so weaponized and so hard to please that we're going to, you know, we're starting to make life difficult for the creators of these things that we love. And we're starting to take the joy out of even just being a fan of some of this stuff. Because as soon as you go online, there's just everyone is bickering and angry and everyone acts like this stuff is life or death and not just trivial blockbuster entertainment. You know, everyone is taking this stuff so seriously that it's really kind of taking a lot of the joy out of this process. And, you know, last month when Benioff and Vice officially exited their Star Wars trilogy to focus on their Netflix development deal... When they did that, one of the reasons cited was, you know, the apprehension about fan response. 
because they know that the Star Wars fandom has become increasingly difficult to manage and satisfy. By the way, John Favreau laughs at that idea. But either way, there's this perception that Star Wars has become very difficult to sort of properly convey to the fans because they become so hyper-opinionated, so hyper-reactive to everything that even if, let's say, they loved or at least liked 75% of something, they will only really focus on the 25% of things that they hated. And that's really what's going to, you know, attract the most attention, create the most conversations. Because think about it. When you're on social media and you're scrolling around, if someone writes something that says, I thought this was pretty good, or that was kind of sucky, you're probably just going to keep on scrolling. But if somebody says something really, really explosive, like this was the worst thing of this version of this character that I've ever seen in my life, and I can't believe anyone thought this was okay, then you're more prone to stop and either respond to them with a disagreement or reply to them if you do echo some of that sentiment because they you know, phrased it in a, in a way that's very attention-grabbing. And, oh, that's a good way to sort of echo my own reservations about this project. Then all of a sudden what you end up with is this all-or-nothing proposition in the way that fans discuss these properties that they love so much. It becomes all-or-nothing. Nothing's ever in the middle. You either love it or you hate it. Nowadays it feels like saying something was pretty good is not enough. Or saying something was, eh, I thought it was a little lame, but, you know, it is what it is. Now you can't say that. I mean, you can. But right now, with the way things are on social media, with the way that fans are starting to communicate online and have been really for years now, everything has to be the most white-hot, red-hot version of your opinion. And this polarizing thing, you know, it's just... With Benioff and Vice exiting, to me, that, that, that sort of, you know, confirms my worst fear. Because remember, and, and you know, we can, you know, I, I got to find older episodes where I said this, but for those of you who've been listening to this show for a while, you know I've been very worried that fans are going to become so spoiled, so entitled, and so demanding that people are just not going to want to bother anymore. That some of the creators who could potentially give us the most groundbreaking and interesting material are going to suddenly go, well, I don't know if I want to take any risks. Because if I take any risks, my whole career could go up in flames. Because lately it feels like fandom is very, it has like the shortest attention span ever. You could have a 20-year career of producing nothing but hit after hit, creating all of these beloved franchises, nurturing all of these filmmakers and and. Yeah, you could do everything right for 20 years. Then you make one crappy movie in a D, with DC on it or Marvel on it or Star Wars on it. And now all of a sudden you're just some hack, some washed up nobody that needs to be replaced because you okayed one creative decision that a bunch of people, a bunch of very vocal people weren't happy about. So now you are a fraud and a hack and you must be replaced. I mean, really, like if I were a director or a producer or a writer and somebody offered me one of these holy cow, sacred cow properties, you know, I would be pretty anxious about tackling it too. Because again, I don't need my career suddenly sinking 
because maybe some vocal people online decided now they hated my decision so much that they're going to make petitions on change.org and they're going to create snappy hashtags. And all of a sudden now, my you know, there's this big weird blemish. Whenever my name comes up online, there's going to be a bunch of people who talk about how I don't deserve to make movies anymore because I decided to do X, Y, or Z with this character they all grew up on. I mean, it really is kind of a dangerous time to be a creator. Not, you know, you know I'm, I'm being a little hyperbolic. Nobody, you know, nobody's fearing for their lives. No one's getting mugged in the streets for this stuff. But if you're a creative type and you've worked your whole life to get opportunities like the ones directors nowadays get to get, if you've worked your whole life to be able to hopefully have Lucasfilm approach you about a Star Wars movie, that should be a moment to celebrate. If you've spent the last, you know, 30 years of your life obsessed with DC Comics and someone says, hey, you know, would you like to direct a movie about this beloved DC character? That should be a, a, an excuse to go run around doing backflips and calling all your friends and saying, guys, the dream has happened for me. But I fear that what's going on with this fandom menace, as J.J. Abrams puts it, is that now those offers are a little less appealing. Because it's like, yes, I love this property. Yes, I love this mythology. But the people that I'm making it for, <laughs> their dislike for anything I might do can become weaponized against me and actually harm my reputation and my ability to get other jobs. And it's like, it's just, it's, I feel like it's starting to happen. You know, Benioff and Vice, I mean, that wasn't the main reason they left. In fact, some people say that they were just pretty much fired. But, you know, one of the reasons that came up when, when, the, when the story came out was this, like, trepidation. Because they had just dealt with it. They had just dealt with it with Game of Thrones. Remember, these people, these two guys produced, what was it, seven seasons or eight seasons? I lose track. But these people, you know, produced and adapted seven or eight seasons of breathtaking television for HBO. Really, like, genre-redefining stuff, taking the TV medium to a whole other level, producing a show where every episode looks like a blockbuster Hollywood movie with the production value and the, the scale of the writing and everything. So these guys produced all of this. Then, some people didn't really care for the way the final season wrapped up, and now they've somehow become pariahs. And now whenever I see their name come up online, there's always kind of this negative taint around them. Like they botched the end of Game of Thrones, so screw these guys, am I right? But it's like, I just want to go, but what about those other seven seasons? What about the great work they did building up to this? Okay, so maybe you didn't like the way it ended, but does that invalidate nearly a decade of fantastic shepherding of one of the greatest achievements on, in television history? Is all of that just invalidated now because you didn't care for how quickly the, the Khaleesi's turn happened at the end of the season? Like, it's just, you know, people have such short attention spans and it's really disappointing. And that's why, like, uh, for today's episode, aside from opening on this and voicing my concern, since today is Thanksgiving, this episode is dropping on Thursday, November something or other, on um, you know, Thanksgiving 2019, on Thursday, November 28th, which, by the way, 
For those of you who might have missed my announcement on Twitter, Thursdays is now officially when you'll be able to catch this show. I'm, I'm switching days. This is the second switch ever. The show used to be a Tuesday show. Then it became a Friday show. And now it's a Thursday show. And uh, this is I have a feeling that this is going to be what finally gets me back on the horse, creating, getting to create this show for you on a weekly basis again. Because trying to do it all on Fridays was uh, a little much, a little too crazy for me. Because as a DJ, you know, Friday is usually a party day. So a lot of times for this last year or so, I spend the entire first five hours of my day recording, editing, producing, promoting a new episode of The Fanboy. Then I have to go load up my car, iron my suit and my tie, and then go drive and go work an event with 200 people and rock that party. It, it makes for a very long day. So I needed to get away from this being a Friday show, and hopefully being on Thursdays helps. But I digress. I'm going to try to spend the rest of this episode, this Thanksgiving episode of The Fanboy, talking about things I'm thankful for rather than things I'm pissed off at since, you know, I, you know, nowadays online it just seems to be like, let's just talk about things that piss us off. I need to express to you something I'm incredibly thankful for here on Thanksgiving 2019. And since we're talking Star Wars, I may as well start with this. The Mandalorian is unbelievable to me. And I'm not going to spoil anything. If you haven't had a chance to see it yet, there's going to be no spoilers here. I just need to kind of hit this point home. The Mandalorian truly and really lives up to the promise of the sale of Lucasfilm by George Lucas to Disney. And now the, the, the Disney part of the equation doesn't really matter so much to me, but when Lucas sold Lucasfilm, to me, what was most exciting about that was that it now meant that a whole new generation of filmmakers and creators were going to get to tell unique stories set in that galaxy far, far away. To me, that was the most exciting thing when I heard the news. It wasn't even necessarily that there was going to be a new sequel trilogy with episodes 7, 8, and 9. It wasn't even necessarily that Hamill, Fisher, and Ford were all set to return. It wasn't even, it, it, the main thing was, wow, so now we're going to get to see this galaxy explored in a myriad of ways, in an endless number of ways, because now all of these amazing directors, writers, and creators who grew up on Star Wars are going to have an opportunity to leave their mark on the lore and to add to the lore and build out that mythos a little bit. And, you know, it took us a little while to get there, but The Mandalorian launched three and a half weeks ago, and to me, it's everything I want from a Star Wars series. It has this unique way of being able to simultaneously, you know, like, respect the lore and respect what's come before it without being a slave to it and without being a retread or a rehash. It's adding new layers to something we already loved, which to me is exciting. It's fleshing out corners of this galaxy that we've only ever glimpsed in moments, like at that cantina in A New Hope. You know, it's fleshing out. There's all kinds of things like that, that along the way, while watching these Star Wars movies for the last 40 years, it's it, along the way, there's been lots of little things that you catch a glimpse of 
that you're like, wow, so yeah, I'd love to know more about that. I'd love to see more about what's going on there. And The Mandalorian, to me, is the first real example of where we can go now that the reins have been you know, loosened a little bit and there's other people out there who could take what they loved about Star Wars and adapt it in their own way and respect what's come before it without being a slave to it. And to me, The Mandalorian, what it's doing for, you know, it to me, like, it, it speaks to me as what I like as a Star Wars fan. I love that there's not a lot of CG. I love that it's a lot of real costumes and real sets. I love that, it, you know, so far at least, it's been very much a very sort of tactile, non-mystical, you know, variation of the Star Wars lore. You know, it, it's... It's moving us away from like, you know, the hero always has to be some kind of Jedi and more towards here's this interesting, mysterious anti-hero from this very, you know, unique and interesting race, the Mandalorians, and you know, this whole culture. And we're going to get to teach you all this stuff that you never knew about them. And it's going to feel familiar at times, but we really are breaking new ground. To me, that balance is just everything. And, you know, John Favreau and Dave Filoni, what they've come up with here so far, and, you know, and all the directors they've hired. But, you know, John Favreau in particular, with the look and the tone and the design elements and the way that he's allowing this story to unfold, I mean, okay, let me put it to you this way, okay? I have an issue with re-watching things. It's like my own weird mental block. I have this thing about not wanting to repeat myself and, and not wanting to use my free time to relive and redo past experiences. And, you know, it, it, this, this feeling manifests itself in all kinds of ways, even in things that don't have to do with entertainment. Like, let's say I'm going to a restaurant that I've gone to recently. Even if I loved the dish that I got here last time, there's this part of me that goes, well, you've already done that, and that's already locked away in your brain. You've had that experience, so now you must find something else on the menu that you like so that you can continue to expand your horizons. It's this weird, you know, it's just the way my brain works. And when it comes to entertainment, it's why, like, I have all of these films and TV series that I adore that I can talk about ad nauseum for hours that I've really only seen once and haven't seen again in, let's say, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years at times. And uh, that's, the, that's the case because it's like I had that experience. It left its mark on me. I loved it. I treasure it. It's now in my DNA. And now I never have to spend those two hours again. So I'm saying all this because... I just have a real mental block around re-watching stuff, even stuff I, ad I adore. In fact, my rule always is I will only re-watch a movie if it is to reintroduce it to somebody else or if, it's to, if, if I'm with a friend or a girlfriend or nowadays my wife, you know, if there's a film that I feel like this person I care about didn't see and I, I want them to experience it, that's when I'll sit down and do it again because then for me it's like I'm not just sitting here 
reliving an old experience. I'm sharing it with someone I care about. And to me, that's the fun and re-exploring it and almost getting to see it and experience it, uh, you know, from the beginning again. Now, now it's through their eyes. Now I'm going to get a fresh perspective. I get to experience this story with this person who's a total newcomer. So that tends to be the only time I allow myself, quote unquote, to relive and rewatch something that I've already experienced and I already have strong opinions on. Well, with The Mandalorian, something very strange has happened. <laughs> the show's only been around for, what, three weeks? I've rewatched that pilot, I think, four times now. And it wasn't just to reintroduce it to people. First, I saw it once by myself. Then I saw it again to uh, reintroduce it to my wife because she missed it when, it when it premiered and I wanted her to see it so she can decide if she wants to watch this show on a weekly basis with me. So that was my second time. Then I ended up watching it, wa watching it a third time on my own again because there was some stuff while watching it with her that I'm like, oh, that kind of went over my head last time. I want to watch it again because that was really cool. Then yesterday, my buddy Greg was here, and we had a couple hours to kill before our band practice. And I know he's a huge Star Wars fan, and not only that, he's a lapsed Star Wars fan. He's a Star Wars fan who, you know, he actually really loved The Force Awakens, was pretty okay with Rogue One, and at first loved The Last Jedi. But then, in hindsight, The Last Jedi actually aged so poorly for him that when I told him that the trailer for the, uh, the Rise of Skywalker was coming out, he had little to no interest. So he's a Star Wars fan his whole life, and somehow in this last year and a half, his fandom has withered away, and that's his personal you know, uh, fandom journey. I, don't, I can't relate to it, but that's where he's at. But last night I kind of had this like, huh, Maybe we can use the Mandalorian to get Greg back in, because that's how my devious mind works. And um, lo and behold, you know, I, I dimmed the lights. My wife had taken my, my kids out to go take care of some stuff. So we had an hour at the house without having to leave yet. So I'm like, Greg, sit your ass on the couch. We're watching the Mandalorian. And he was very like, really? All right. And... Homeboy was riveted, and now he wants to get Disney Plus. And for me, too, like that was the fourth time I've seen the pilot, and I willingly sat there and watched it a fourth time. That is not my style at all. And I'm about to do some rewatching of the other ones because guess what? The result of my showing it to my wife and seeing if she wants to do this on a weekly basis was a positive one. She loved the first episode. And that means I'm going to have to rewatch the second episode soon. And I cannot wait to rewatch episode three again. This is the way. Because it was phenomenal. And I, it's just, it's, 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 to me, it's very notable that The Mandalorian is so watchable and so well made that it has someone like me who has like basically an, an, an allergic response <laughs> to reliving certain experiences. And here I am just watching it over and over again and enjoying it every single time and finding new little bits of it that speak more and more to me. 
So on this Thanksgiving 2019, I got to say the thing I'm most thankful for is The Mandalorian on Disney+. And if you haven't yet checked it out, I strongly suggest you do. Even if you are like my buddy Greg, even if you are a lapsed Star Wars fan, you may be surprised to see how much The Mandalorian may very well be right up your alley. And that's exciting for me too, because kind of circling back to what I was talking about on episode 102 a couple weeks back, you know, what's exciting about this whole Disney Plus Star Wars TV experiment is that we're going to have a chance to see all kinds of different flavors of Star Wars on the small screen for the next couple of years. You know, because you got to imagine the Obi-Wan series is not going to be that similar to The Mandalorian because The Mandalorian's about bounty hunters and The Mandalorian takes after, you know, being a Western. But meanwhile, we're dealing with one of the most powerful Jedi, one of the last living remaining Jedi after Revenge of the Sith. We're going to get to, you know, this is going to be a very sort of mystical Jedi, maybe even samurai-ish type story. Who knows where they're going with it? But, you know, it's not going to be just like The Mandalorian. And the point is, Star Disney Plus and what Lucasfilm is working on for the small screen is going to give each type of Star Wars fan a chance to enjoy the different pockets and corners of the galaxy that have always appealed to them most. And to me... That is super exciting, and if The Mandalorian is step one in that direction, I am just, you know, I I could not be happier with the state of Star Wars and where we're heading with Star Wars. Because in actuality, before I change this subject and, and, and leave that galaxy far, far away, you know, I was thinking about it while preparing for today's recording, that I, you know... I feel like since I get into fights with people like Rick Shu from Batman on film, my boy Rick, about The Last Jedi, I think there's this perception that I've become like an anti-Star Wars person or like I've like like maybe I've become a lapsed fan or something. And the bottom line is that's not true. Because while The Last Jedi definitely sparks a lot of passion in me to want to come out and, and point out the things about that film that I thought were just really sloppily and poorly done and just ill thought out. Overall, this new Lucasfilm has done amazingly by me because, you know, let's go film by film real quick. What have they released? They released The Force Awakens, which despite some of its retreadier elements, I still love The Force Awakens. To me, that was a wonderful reintroduction to all of the things that drew me to Star Wars to begin with, and an excellent way to bring in a new generation of fans. Because that that was the cool thing about getting to share that with my kids. You know, my daughter Talia saw The Force Awakens, and suddenly she was a Star Wars fan, and she loved Rey, but she also understood the importance of Luke and Han Solo, because I had shown her some of the original trilogy. But The Force Awakens very much began her personal journey as a Star Wars fan. And that's why I'm so grateful to what J.J. Abrams did there, because The Force Awakens, yes, it may rehash some stuff from A New Hope and from Empire Strikes Back, but that film was simultaneously a love letter to fans of the original trilogy 
and a way to bring back the magic that started it all to begin with. So was it a little bit on the nose in some of the stuff that it recycled? Absolutely. And I wish, more than anything, I wish there hadn't been a star killer base. Like, you know, another Death Star type thing. To me, that was JJ's biggest failing. Having another giant space station for our ragtag team of rebels to go destroy. I, you know, that if, if I could go back in time and, and send JJ, you know, get JJ's ear, I would tell him, please, no more Death Star type things, I beg of you. But aside from that, I adore The Force Awakens. Then what do we get next? We got Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, which I also loved. I thought Rogue One was another, kind of like our first taste of the, of the type of stuff that The Mandalorian is. You know, our first taste of, ah, here is a Star Wars story that doesn't revolve around Jedis or, Scar or Skywalkers or any of that sort of stuff. It's about the soldiers on the ground trying to infiltrate the Empire, get the secret plans. This is about the birth of the Rebellion. You know, to me, Rogue One was the first real step in that direction. And I loved it. I, I think Rogue One is a dynamite Star Wars movie that feels familiar but different at the same time. Then, there was The Last Jedi, which, even despite my issues with it, to me, it's not a dud. To me, like when I, if I give it a letter grade, it's not an F or a D or even a C. To me, Last Jedi is somewhere in the Bs, either a B or a B minus. I haven't seen it in a while, so I don't want to commit to a letter grade at this moment. But I remember that after watching it twice in the span of a week after it came out, I felt like, yeah, this is like a B or a B minus. It's not the worst Star Wars movie I've ever seen. That still belongs to Attack of the Clones. But, you know, it, it, this script really needed a lot of work, you know, and I go back to the fact that my issues with The Last Jedi had nothing to do with, like, that's not my Luke or any of that sort of, like, it didn't live up to my expectations or how I would have written it. No, my issues were, I just thought the script was bad. I just thought, like, that low-speed chase, the Canto bite sequence, like, to me, a lot of it felt sort of half-baked and forced and and contrarian just for the sake of being contrarian and trying to surprise and subvert when in actuality it just outsmarted itself instead of the audience. So, you know, my issues with The Last Jedi are not like the, the, the little petty, childish, little fanboy stuff that you see online. I just thought it was a poorly written movie, period. You know, regardless of the choices they made for the characters, I just thought it was a poorly written movie. But... It was still Star Wars, and I still love Star Wars. I'm not going to turn my back on a mythology and a base of characters that has meant so much to me for so long because Last Jedi was only a B- minus instead of an A to me. You know what I mean? It's just absurd to even think in those terms. But either way, you know, The Last Jedi did not sour me on Star Wars or on Kathleen Kennedy or on what Lucasfilm is trying to do with this galaxy we all know and love so much. And then what came after that? Solo, a Star Wars story. And despite my reservations about the movie itself, you know, leading up to it about like, is this a movie really anyone wants? Is everyone ready to accept someone other than Harrison Ford playing Han Solo? 
You know, I had a lot of questions about why is this movie being made when all it's really doing is filling in blanks nobody really asked for. But ultimately, I saw the movie and I loved it. And even though my concerns ended up being legitimate, by the way, because the audiences showed you they were not particularly interested in Solo. And that's why the box office really suffered. And yes, it came out in a very packed month at the box office with Infinity War and Deadpool 2 and other stuff going on. But still, this is Star Wars. This is Han Solo. This is Chewbacca. This is, you know, in theory... If people wanted to see this story, they would have made time to go see this damn story, but they didn't. So even despite that, though, even despite the fact that I was right, that audiences were not clamoring for this movie and were perhaps not ready to accept someone other than Harrison Ford playing Han Solo, even despite all that, I loved Solo. I really, to this day, I've seen it, I think, three times now, and I'm totally like, you know, when I find people who are Star Wars fans who haven't seen it, I always say, oh, you have to. You gotta, you know, you gotta find the time because it feels like classic Star Wars, but it also has a very kind of cool, fun, playful tone and establishes a whole little mini Han Solo pocket of the universe that I would love to see further explored. So I'm a big champion for Solo or Star Wars story. And a part of me hopes that we get like a mini series on Disney Plus that continues it and brings back Alden Ehrenreich. You know, I, don't, I think the ship has sailed on whether or not we're ever going to see a sequel, even though they were trying to set up for sequels. You know, we, we ain't getting sequels. But I do think there's a pretty decent chance that we can hopefully, I, I shouldn't say there's a decent chance, I should say I can see it happening. I would love it if it did, and I kind of think they'd be silly not to if they still have the, you know, Alden Ehrenreich and others under contract. Let's do it. I would love to see more of Han Solo's adventures over on the small screen, though. Um, but okay, so, you know, th th that's, that's my bit on Star Wars today. That's what I'm extremely grateful for, the Mandalorian and all of Disney Plus and what they're doing right now to kind of help bump out and flesh out the Star Wars galaxy, which I love so much, even if I was not obsessed with The Last Jedi. But now the next big topic that we have to discuss today, and this is pretty much going to take us for the rest of the show to discuss, is Superman and DC on film, because there's a lot to talk about. Since the last episode, there's been a lot to, that's, that's come to light about Superman and Henry Cavill and Black Adam and the release of the Snyder Cut and a Green Lantern movie and Michael B. Jordan coming in. There's all kinds of different things. And it's time to go long form on them, boys and girls, because it's Thanksgiving and this is what we're going to do today. So buckle up. So first things first, let's go Superman. Let's, let's broadly discuss Superman, let's discuss Henry Cavill, let's discuss the latest developments and how I see it all fitting into place in a way that could be very favorable, depending on what aspect of the fandom you belong to, okay? So first, I'd like to kind of, you know, show you a little timeline here. Let's go through a timeline, shall we? On November 14th of this year, this is what, 
a week ago, on November 14th, eh, two weeks ago, uh, Black Adam gets an official release date, thus finally making this freaking movie real, right? Because, you know, we've heard about Black Adam forever, for years and years and years. We've been hearing about Dwayne Johnson and DC Entertainment and them having some sort of agreement to make a Black Adam movie. This was after he had been given the option to basically play whatever DC character he'd wanted. You know, at times he, he, he toggled back and forth between being Jon Stewart, Green Lantern. He was even thinking about being Shazam at one point. He was thinking about being Lobo at one point. And ultimately he decided he wanted to be Black Adam. And yet, even despite that, there's been no official announcement for a very long time. And even though we've heard rumors of when it might film, you know, nothing's real until you get a release date. Because now you know, okay, wow, so there's real momentum happening here. And this movie is actually happening. It's not just a pipe dream anymore. And by the way, that release date is December 22nd, 2021, which is also happens to be when Dwayne Johnson has found a lot of success. Because remember, Dwayne Johnson's Jumanji sequel, the one that came out a couple years ago, whatever that one was called, Welcome to the Jungle, that one did astoundingly well at the end of December, even despite opening after The Last Jedi, opening up with Star Wars around it. And I'm already starting to see people get concerned. I'm like, isn't there supposed to be Avatar in 2021? Isn't there supposed to be some other thing in December of 2021? It's like, guys, it doesn't matter. Dwayne Johnson has already experienced the fact that that post-holiday marketplace has a ton of room for anyone who wants to set up shop there. So on November 14th, he, we finally got a release date of December 22nd, 2021 for Black Adam. Then, the next day, Boss Logic posts some Black Adam Instagram art. And this is something that I feel has gone over the heads of some, okay? When he posted this piece of Black Adam art, he did it with the following caption. He said, for the ones asking about the piece I mentioned in my previous post, this is it, where it all began. Back in early 2018, The Rock and his team reached out to me and asked me if I could create a piece of him fighting Superman, Henry Cavill, with Superman doing some damage. His idea, he put in, in parentheses. This was around the time where the movie was in circulation, but not 100%. And it's crazy to think from this piece, I got to run it back officially, but this time with Jim Lee. Because yes, when, when, when the, the previous day, when The Rock announced the release date, he did it with a piece of art of Black Adam that was a collaboration between Jim Lee and Boss Logic. But then this is what happened the next day where Boss Logic said, you know, this is, you know, I posted that thing yesterday. I made mention of another piece of art and here's that piece of art. And by the way, The Rock asked me to include Henry Cavill's Superman and show him doing some serious damage to Black Adam. Now this all but confirms the rumors that many of us have heard for years now, which was that Dwayne Johnson is obsessed with this idea of Black Adam and Superman throwing down. He's obsessed with this idea also of Black Adam as a counterpoint to Superman. Even in the article, 
Actually, not even the article. Even in his Instagram post announcing Black Adam, he talks about Superman. Here's what he said. Like most kids growing up, I dreamt about being a superhero, having cool superpowers, fighting for what's right, and always protecting the people. It all changed for me when I was 10 years old and was first introduced to the greatest superhero of all time, Superman, big capital letters, Superman. As a kid, Superman was the hero I always wanted to be. But a few years into my fantasy, I realized that Superman was the hero I could never be. I was too rebellious, too rambunctious, too resistant to convention and authority. Despite my troubles, I was still a good kid with a good heart. I just liked to do things my way. Now, years later, as a man with the same DNA I had as a kid, my superhero dreams have come true. I'm honored to join the iconic DC universe, and it's a true pleasure to become Black Adam. Black Adam is blessed by magic with powers equal to Superman. But the difference is he doesn't toe the mark or walk the line. He's a rebellious, one-of-a-kind superhero who will always do what's right for the people. But he does it his way. Truth and justice, the Black Adam way. This role is unlike any other I've ever played in my career, and I'm grateful to the bone. We'll all go on this journey together. Black Adam 12-22-21. So, Johnson cannot help himself. He continues to frame Black Adam as the antithesis of Superman, or being the yin to Superman's yang, and showing that these two have equal powers but very different approaches. He is absolutely obsessed with Black Adam and Superman sharing some sort of time together. And as evidenced by the fact that he asked Boss Logic, he specifically requested the, that Boss Logic use Henry Cavill's Superman doing some damage to Black Adam for a piece of artwork. So to me, you know, th this is all starting to kind of add to a sort of profile, right? This is all, if you're a detective or an investigative reporter, these are all little clues and things that you have to keep in mind as you read all these stories and, and start filling in different blanks and putting together a theory or a profile or something worth investigating. So let's continue on our timeline. On November 19th, a mere five days after Dwayne Johnson announces the release date for Black Adam with a post that is very Superman heavy, his buddy, and also, you know, who's managed by his ex-wife, Danny Garcia, Henry Cavill, is over in Men's Health with a brand new interview that was indeed recorded this fall. You know, so, I mean, sometimes with these interviews, you know, the, the, the uh, interview was done months and months in advance, and it's almost irrelevant to today. But Men's Health notes that they spoke with Henry Cavill this year, early this fall. And this fall only began one month ago. So this is all happening basically simultaneously. What happened was Henry said he's still Superman. He said 
The cape is in the closet. It's still mine. I'm not just going to sit quietly in the dark as all this stuff is going on. I've not given up the role. There's a lot I have to give for Superman yet. A lot of storytelling to do. A lot of real, true depths to the honesty of the character I want to get into. I want to reflect the comic books. That's important to me. There's a lot of justice to be done for Superman. The status is, you'll see. Wow, that's a pretty bold statement for Mr. Cavill, coming only days after Black Adam was announced, right? And by the way, little sidebar, since I've given up on the daily news stuff, I'd like to suggest to you all, if you're looking for great daily news coverage on all of these movies you care about, with pretty much no spin, just here is a very matter-of-fact accounting of the news, then the site that you need to be frequenting on a daily basis is darkhorizons.com. Garth over there, Garth who runs that site, he does a great job of just distilling all of the news into its most simple form. He rarely takes an opinion. There's rarely any kind of like spin or any kind of bias whatsoever. He literally just condenses and summarizes big stories in ways that are very blank and easy to read. There's not, there's no pop-up videos. There's no intrusive ads. There's no clickbait headlines. Dark Horizons pound for pound is the best site you'll find for just daily news updates. So if you're not checking out darkhorizons.com, I strongly suggest you check them out because they're who I tend to use when I'm trying to find the most important quotes and newsworthy items to read here on the show and to discuss. And by the way, speaking of you know things worth discussing, in that same interview, uh, Cavill also was asked to give an honest assessment of the three films he has played Superman in so far. And uh, here's what he said. He said, Man of Steel, a great starting point. If I were to go back, I don't think I'd change anything. Batman v Superman, very much a Batman movie. And I think that realm of darkness is great for a Batman movie. Justice League, it didn't work. And by the way, we're going to get into some Justice League stuff in a second because, you know, there's some interesting theories as to why Cavill has not come out in support of release the Snyder Cut, even as all of his other co-workers and colleagues have. Uh, but we'll get to that in a second. Let's continue on the timeline, though, okay? So to recap, November 14th, Black Adam gets a release date. November 15th, Boss Logic reveals a piece of artwork that shows that The Rock requests to have Superman versus Black Adam in the artwork for this movie. November 19th, Cavill tells Men's Health that the cape is still in his closet, and you'll see what comes next. November 21st, Hiram Garcia, who is a producer on Black Adam, who works alongside Dwayne Johnson, and I believe he's actually his uh, like former brother-in-law. If I'm not mistaken, Hiram Garcia is the brother of Danny Garcia. So Hiram Garcia was asked by ComicBook.com about whether or not we can expect to see Henry Cavill as Superman in Black Adam. And here's what Haram Garcia said on November 21st. I think the DC Universe is a wonderful universe and we're open to everything. 
We have big aspirations for it. We're friends with Henry. Dwayne and Henry are friends. It's a huge comic book brand as well. And I always just love the idea. Who knows? But man, Black Adam for Superman is really cool. That'd be really powerful. All right? So, I mean, are you guys starting to see all the different things that are, are kind of connecting here, possibly? Then, November 26th, only 12 days after the Black Adam announcement, we find out that according to Variety, J.J. Abrams and others, but J.J. Abrams has met with Warner Brothers about possibly shepherding a Superman movie or creating a Superman movie. And how does that tie into all this? Well, I just like to remind people that the last time J.J. Abrams was involved with a Superman movie, it was called Superman Flyby, and Superman at that time was going to be played by Henry Cavill. So you've got to know that it's at least a possibility in Abrams' mind, hey, we have a Superman actor who's still under contract for one more Superman movie, who's dying to play Superman. Then we also have the blockbuster actor Dwayne Johnson campaigning for his Black Adam to face off against Henry Cavill's Superman. And we have a star in Henry Cavill who is dying to still play the role. So it makes you wonder that if the, the, the ducks were to, if the proverbial ducks could be lined up the right way, Henry Cavill could very well end up playing the part again. Now remember, this is me theorizing, okay? This is not based on any insider information. I didn't contact any colleagues about for what I'm about to share with you. I'm just connecting the dots and sharing with you what I, as a fan, feel like is happening, all right? I feel like this all cannot be a mere coincidence. The timing of this is, at the very least, strategic. Even if it's not that Warner Brothers is trying to convey anything, because it doesn't sound like they are, it seems like that the, Dwayne Johnson's team, his team of himself, the Garcias, and Henry, are all trying to use this opportunity to get Henry's name out there in a way as to say that you know that version of Superman still very much exists, is still very much viable, and wouldn't you love to see that version of Superman go up against Dwayne Johnson's Black Adam? Like, they're beating that drum real hard, and I think they have a point. I mean, who, who wouldn't want that at this point? And if Aquaman proved anything, and heck, if even if Wonder Woman proved anything, it's that these DC characters have an ability to bounce back, despite what anyone felt about Zack Snyder's films and then you know the, some of the polarizing and divisive opinions people have about Man of Steel and Batman v Superman and Justice League, whether it's the theatrical cut or if you're a Snyder cut person. No matter what, we know that these characters can have successful solo movies after these things come out. You know, Aquaman made a billion after Justice League came out. So with the right director, with the right creative team behind it, with the right vision, these characters can still fly and can still be 
a huge, huge, huge success story. So that's why for me, as someone who, you know, didn't necessarily, I didn't love Man of Steel, you know, that the, the third act let me down. I'm not going there again. Don't worry. It's not, it's not happening. <laughs> I've already had that talk enough times. Uh, even though BVS to me was not really the, a version of the character that really speaks to me, even though the ultimate cut is a, a better version of it, but even that doesn't really like sell me on this. Even despite my reservations about the Superman that we've seen so far, I strongly and firmly believe that we can still get the equivalent of James Wan's Aquaman for Superman. You know, a movie that really kind of turns the page on what's come before, emphasizes the parts of this character that were beloved, that were, you know, successful, and takes it in an exciting new direction in a way that sort of is a stark contrast to the way we had met Jason Momoa's Aquaman. I think someone else, especially someone like an Abrams or, you know, another fan favorite, Christopher McQuarrie, I feel like other people could absolutely pivot this Superman in such a way that he could still be viable. And we don't need to throw out the baby with the bathwater. We don't need to reboot. We don't need to recast. We don't need to start from scratch. I think Henry Cavill's Superman is viable. And right now you have some important Hollywood players beating that drum as well. So here's hoping that we can get another Superman movie up and going within the next couple of years that stars Mr. Cavill. And who knows, if, if Dwayne Johnson can win that battle and get Henry to be part of his Black Adam movie, if he can get maybe that fourth contractual obligation for Cavill to be on Black Adam, that could be an interesting way to reintroduce Cavill's Superman to audiences. Because if you think about it, and Justice League, even though it, it was, uh, you know, it, it misfired at the box office, for those who did see it, they did see a Superman who was markedly different than we'd seen before. We saw a Superman who'd risen from the dead and resembled more like the quote-unquote classic version of the character, so to speak. By the way, I'm sorry for the background noise. There's gardeners outside of my house doing a lot of really noisy gardening work right now. And unfortunately, this is the only time I can record. So we're, gonna we're just going to have to accept that sound, okay? I'm very sorry. But yeah, you know, audiences have already been introduced to the idea that Superman post-death is not the Superman that we saw pre-death. So in other words, if you didn't care for Man of Steel, don't worry about it. If you didn't love BVS... Don't worry about it. This is a different form of Superman now. You know, it's just like with Aquaman, audiences can absolutely be sold on the fact that this is a different take on Superman, despite it being the same actor and despite some of his origin, you know, not necessarily being what you'd love. There's a way to embrace this Superman with a kind of a new fresh coat of paint on him. And now to kind of circle back to what I alluded to earlier about the Snyder Cut, I think this may be the main reason he has not yet come out in support of the Snyder Cut. Because he wants to come back as Superman, 
but he does not want to come back as Snyder's Superman. So if you're Henry Cavill right now, even if you would like the Snyder Cut to be released, which I don't think he does, by the way, but even if you do, you don't want it to be with this kind of publicity. You don't want it to be the Snyder version of Superman. You don't want it to be the version of Superman that the studio apparently hated so much that they had Joss Whedon replace almost every single frame of him in Justice League. Which, by the way, that's always been one of the most mystifying things. And I know uh, listener Ron Diesel has always you know, echoed this remark as well. That, my God, I want to see what was so wrong with Zack Snyder's Superman in Justice League that the studio basically said, hey, uh, Joss, can you basically just redo all of Superman's 20 minutes in the movie? Because, you know, the way you know it, the, the, the dead giveaway that hardly any of Snyder's Superman made it into the theatrical cut is that Henry Cavill has that fuzzy upper lip, that weird-looking face in virtually every scene. So that tells you right there that one of the big priorities in rewriting and redoing Justice League was for Joss Whedon to basically erase every little bit of Superman that he can from this movie and create a new Superman because they hated whatever it was that Snyder and I guess Terrio had come up with. And based on some comments that Cavill has made, you know, he probably agreed. You know, around the time the Justice League came out, there were quotes about him talking about how there had been stylistic mistakes made with how to present these characters. And even this roundabout way that he addresses Batman v Superman, where he says, well, you know, uh, it was it, that was very much a Batman movie. You know, as he put it, he said, very much a Batman movie, and I think that realm of darkness is great for a Batman movie. So... We have every reason to believe that Cavill was not on board with the direction Snyder was steering things and that the studio was not on board with where, the, where Snyder was taking things. So if you're Henry Cavill right here, right now, trying to campaign to return as Superman, you're not going to do it by retweeting a picture of the Superman that Snyder had in mind for Justice League. That's not going to help you convince the studio to bring you back. Because remember, the studio apparently hated that version of Superman. So that's why I think that's, that's basically Henry's conundrum right now. I want to come back, but not as that version. And right now the internet is on fire talking about this alternate version. But that's not the Superman I want to play anymore. So to me, I think that's one of the interesting subplots here of like, well, Gal Gadot came out in favor of it. We know Jason Momoa has been a champion for it. Ben Affleck finally broke his silence on the two-year anniversary of Justice League, and he said, release the Snyder Cut. Like, everyone's been coming out of the woodworks from all different ends of the industry to ask for this. And yet you'd think Henry Cavill who wants to play Superman would get in on it because if the Snyder Cut gets released, then that could create, you know, an opportunity for his Superman to live on, for him to be able to maybe build on that or to at very least have his Superman back in the public consciousness. 
So you'd think, all right, you know, it, it, he would support it. But then when you look at it the way I'm pointing out, that yes, he wants to come back, but not as that version of the character, that explains kind of, I think, why he's not chomping at the bit to come support this thing. There was even a, I think I read somewhere that Snyder kind of tried to lure him in, that when he was releasing different character-driven pictures as part of the lead-up to November 17th's big, you know, release the Snyder Cut day on social media, he apparently had put one up of Superman and then deleted it. One that really spotlighted Henry in particular and then deleted it. And then I think he put up another one that was just about, in general, how, you know, Superman has not yet risen. But there had been one that was more focused on Henry in, in particular, and then he took it down. And a part of me wonders, did Henry ask him to do that? <laughs> or did he find out through Henry's camp, hey, Zach, listen, you know, Henry does not want to be associated with the Snyder Cut stuff because he's trying to get his own Superman sequels greenlit and he's not going to do that by trying to convince the studio to double down on a version of the character that they roundly rejected years ago. So, I, you know, I just, I definitely think that there are dots to be connected here. I don't think it's a coincidence that we have not seen Henry come out in favor of the Snyder Cut just yet. And it honestly lends credence to old rumors I'd heard a long time ago, which were, and by the way, these are rumors that I never published myself, but that other colleagues of mine have independently researched after I've spoken to them about it, and who they've been able to corroborate it with key members of the, the film crew for Justice League, which was that when the whole thing happened, when Snyder got replaced, when Whedon came on, when an entire new creative direction was kind of installed, the way things kind of broke down for the Justice League members was as follows. The one that was most impacted by the changes and thus he checked out almost entirely from the process once Snyder was replaced was Ben Affleck. And it's not necessarily because he's this huge, devout Zack Snyder fan, mind you. I mean, maybe he is. But the way it was explained to me, it's that it wasn't so much Snyder that he was a champion of, but rather he liked the beginning, middle, and end of his Batman arc. And he liked that his Batman had a defined exit. He didn't want to sign on to be Batman for the next 10 or 15 years. He was not looking to be like the Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man of the DC Cinematic Universe. He didn't have this intention of, yeah, I want to play Batman in 10 movies. No. He liked that when Snyder sold him on the idea, it's like, we're going to start here, and then in movie five or six, you die. <laughs> you know? And I don't even know if they, even if they wouldn't stick with the dying thing, you know, there's always been talk for years and years and years there's always been talk that there was going to be a way to sort of write Affleck out. Whether, you know, since we're starting with an older Bruce, you can have him retire and then you bring in a new Batman, or we now focus on Nightwing, or now we go like Batman 2099 in a way. You know, I mean, sorry, Batman Beyond. Um, you know, so th th there's always been this talk that Affleck signed on for Batman with the understanding that there was a finish line. 
and that he'd only have to play the role for maybe five or six years or so in a few key appearances and then end. Once Snyder was taken out and we found out, you know, and DC and the new people trying to call the shots were trying to make the, the franchise more, you know, um, more conventional and to give these characters a more open-ended lifespan, Affleck pretty much, you know, he checked out. He no longer wanted to be part of this new vision. He was sold on the story that Snyder wanted to tell. He was sold on being able to kind of get in and out as Batman and still be able to use the popularity and the money that his Batman movies were making to make the kinds of movies he really likes, like Live by Night and The Accountant and other stuff. You know, he really thought that this arrangement was going to be mutually beneficial and done in a couple of years. But as soon as Snyder got replaced, the whole thing changed, and that's why for the reshoots, he basically snored his way through it, didn't get back into great shape to play Batman again. The cowl didn't even fit his head right anymore, which is why he looks a little silly in a lot of the shots, because the cowl had been form-fitted to his fit shape. But when the reshoots were announced, he didn't bother trying to get back in that shape. So the cowl just makes his entire lower mouth look super puffy because it's basically just squeezing his face meat out through the mouth hole. <laughs> it's just hilarious, this movie. There's so much to talk about with Justice League, man. But, you know, so Affleck was kind of like number one, the most impacted, the most like, all right, well, if this is what you're doing, then I'm over it. Go ahead and hire another director. Go ahead and recast me. Go ahead and do what you got to do. This is not what I signed up for. And I'm basically going to do these reshoots and this press tour at gunpoint because I want to just save face, do right by the studio, and then get the hell out of here. So Affleck was the first one who was just like, nope, I'm over it. I'm done. Then sort of like caught in the crossfire were the trio of Momoa, Fisher, and Miller who, you know, they were all still kind of waiting for their solo movies, and they were still hopeful that Justice League... Remember, the plan for Justice League was that it was going to launch their solo franchises. Remember, a lot of people thought, why are you doing it in this direction? You know, when Marvel did it, they did solo movies first to get you to invest first so that you would then care more about the team-up movie. You know, that, that's kind of how a lot of, like, very conventional thinking people looked at it. But the way DC was trying to do it was either rather, you know, exciting and different. They were going to say, no, we don't need to do solos first. Let's introduce these characters in a huge crossover event like Justice League. Then from there, we continue. You know, and as such, Justice League is going to plant seeds for these solo movies. There's going to be a very thoughtful, fleshed out subplot for Cyborg. That's why he's the heart of the movie, as Snyder said in early interviews for Justice League. You know, he planted seeds for where they were going with Cyborg. He planted seeds for where they were going with The Flash. And that actually stayed in the theatrical cut. And that's why I'm bummed that, you know, this Flash stuff continues to linger on because... Come on, we have Ezra Miller, a very talented actor. You got Billy Crudup in there as his son. You know, to me, I don't think there were a lot of complaints about The Flash and Justice League. I know some people, of course, you know, you're always going to find somebody who hated it 
And maybe there's a whole little subset of the fandom that hated it. But I don't remember coming out of Justice League or, or monitoring the reception that movie was getting and hearing people go, oh my goodness, we can't see this Flash ever again. I hate this Flash. That just wasn't something that I saw happening a lot. Maybe, maybe I'm lucky. But as far as I know, the Flash could and should and, you know, he, he just, he could and should continue. And then there's the stuff that he had planted. You know, we, we recently, you know, Snyder just released pictures of Willem Dafoe as Vulco. And it shows you that, you know, Aquaman's origin also was given a little bit of a, of a start within Justice League to set up James Wan's Aquaman. So the studio signed off on Justice League being the launch pad for all these solo movies. And when it comes to Miller and Fisher and Momoa, those are three characters that didn't have their solos yet. Those are three characters who were counting on Justice League being good enough to launch their solo franchises. And that's why, by the way, as part of this little you know, info dump I was given about how the cast kind of shook up when Justice League and all the, you know, everything happened with Whedon and Snyder and the studio and all that, that's why when they finally saw the movie, the theatrical cut, which I'm told that they didn't actually sit and watch, they didn't get a chance to, until its premiere overseas, that they realized exactly how much had been changed and exactly how much had been edited out. Because I think, this is just, I think, based on what I was told, that they felt that Whedon's filming was going to somehow complement some of what had already been there. They didn't necessarily think that, for example, that they were going to edit out almost all of Cyborg's subplot and almost all of Aquaman's subplot. So when they saw the theatrical cut and realized, wow, this movie no longer sets up our movies at all, and feels like a and this movie feels like a radical departure than the film we signed up to make with Zach. Uh, I'm told that after that European premiere they attended, there was a lot of like embarrassment and a lot of anger and a lot of just like, what did you guys do to this Justice League movie when it comes to Miller, Momoa, and Fisher? And a lot of it, you know, it makes sense. It makes sense. These people were counting on Justice League to be the launch pad for their solo films and thus their careers. And instead, what happened was Cyborg was basically taken out entirely. Miller, I mean, I, I guess at the time, Miller didn't know that he was about to enter this level of limbo. And then Momoa got really lucky that even despite Justice League's thing, you know, James Wan and him had already pretty much filmed Aquaman and it was already coming out a year and a month later, no matter what Justice League did. So that's why, you know, Momoa, it's, it's, it makes sense that he supports Snyder's thing, but you also kind of get the sense that he's also the lucky one because compared to Fisher and compared to Miller, the fact that Aquaman was sort of rushed into production during you know that that initial rush to get the DCEU going and create this big multi-film two or three movie a year franchise they were trying to make the fact that Aquaman was rushed into production 
ended up being Momoa's saving grace. Because as, as others have noted, yeah, it, had they waited to see how Justice League fared, we probably wouldn't have even gotten Aquaman. Isn't that crazy to think about? That Aquaman, this billion-dollar success story that's going to give away to a sequel and possibly a spinoff about the trench, all of that might not have happened at all had Warner Brothers simply been patient enough to see how Justice League went before filming it. But Aquaman was already knee-deep in production, so even with Justice League falling flat on its face at the box office and getting 40% on Rotten Tomatoes and all this other stuff, even despite all that, Aquaman got to continue and it got to exist. It's just, a, it, it's an interesting little bit of like what-ifs, right? Those little forks in the road that make you wonder, huh, I wonder how things could have played out if at that fork things had gone a slightly different way. But to continue kind of on this path, right, in terms of what happened when Snyder was replaced, Ben Affleck was the one who was most just over it and upset and just checked out from that point on. Then you had Miller, Fisher, Momoa next in line being upset about what just happened. But then after them, you have Gal Gadot who she wasn't necessarily happy with the changes either, but nothing happened in that movie that screwed up Wonder Woman 1984 or that was going to damage how much the public loves her Wonder Woman. You know, her Wonder Woman got out of BVS and Justice League relatively unscathed. She knew she was going to be making her sequel with Patty Jenkins. She knew she was going to get to continue the exciting work that had begun with the first Wonder Woman movie, which had become a whole big like cultural phenomenon, made all this money, made all of the, had all of this love, all these great reviews, all of this positive energy around it. So she knew that even though this Justice League movie and what they did to Snyder didn't really work out and was kind of a mess... She knew she could, she could survive this. So she wasn't all that personally upset about what happened with Justice League. She just kind of turned her attention to Wonder Woman 1984. And that brings us to Henry, who I'm told was the one who was most okay with what happened to Snyder. And again, this is not because of a personal vendetta. I don't think he wishes Zack any you know harm he's not you know he, he he probably also i mean listen he's only human he has to think that what happened there was really hard and really gutting and really tough for snyder to get through and he probably understands that there's a whole subset of fans out there who were buying into that and you know so listen i'm sure he sees the negatives about what happened here but that doesn't change the fact that on some level he seems to have accepted that Snyder's Superman was not connecting, or at least not in the way that he wanted to connect. You know, he has some stories he wants to tell. He likes the idea of playing a more classic version of the character. And that's why he was trying to basically separate of Snyder. Throughout 2018, him and his team were aggressively approaching the studio with Danny Garcia kind of leading the way on negotiations, they were aggressively approaching the studio with, well, here are the Superman sequels we would like to make. This is the kind of story I want to tell. I've got Christopher McQuarrie kind of on the hook who would totally write and or direct them for us. Like Henry was basically 
trying to distance himself from what had happened before and just go, well, now let's push off into an exciting new future. You know, and, and that's precisely why he's not jumping up and down with pom-poms trying to remind people about a version of the character that the public roundly rejected the first time around. Because let's not forget, if Man of Steel had done astoundingly well at the box office, if Batman v Superman had lived up to its box office potential and had been received with the amount of love and accolades and admiration and respect that they very well could and should have, then we wouldn't even be having these questions. Henry would still just be Superman, and he would be, you know, clearly he's committed to the role. So he'd be dropping a Superman movie on us every couple years if he could. Unlike Affleck, who liked having that exit, Cavill seems to want to be Superman forever. He likes playing the part. He wants to make a bunch of these movies. So that's why when you put yourself in his shoes, it's like, okay, the entire reason that I'm having all of this difficulty getting my Superman movies going is because of the movies I made with Snyder. So why would I lend my name to the Snyder Cut cause? Why would I remind people about the Superman that split them? Instead of trying to basically pick up on what happened with Aquaman and go, okay, now we're, we're giving this character that you've already seen in a couple of movies, we're giving this character a new lease on life with the hopes that you will love and accept him because there's a lot of amazing stories I can tell if we can just get the fuck over what happened a few years ago. And to that end, you know, I'd like to kind of circle back to what he said in Men's Health because it's very interesting and very notable how bold he is with his word selection and for what he's trying to imply. He says, there's a lot of justice to be done for Superman, which by the way is, you know, there's justice. That means that he feels like the character has not been done justice and that he feels that there's been a great injustice done to Superman. So that's the first thing he says. There's a lot of justice to be done for Superman. The status is you'll see. So that implies that there's already balls rolling in motion. You'll see basically means, yeah, there's stuff coming and you're, you're going to see how we plan on bringing justice to Superman. Now, that could just be Hollywood talk. That could just be him using a public forum to try and guide Warner Brothers' hand towards giving him the offer that he'd like to stay on and to get them to consider bringing him back. Right now, he has... Dwayne Johnson and, you know, Boss Logic and Hiram Garcia all trying to basically point out, hey, Superman versus Black Adam would be pretty boss, and Dwayne and Henry are friends, and Henry wants to be Superman. So right now, yeah, so, so this all could just be another type of form of negotiating. Or, if we're going to take it at face value... That means that there actually have been some sort of conversations and that there's some sort of ball already rolling because he literally says the words, the status is you'll see. You will see. So 
Do I think this is confirmation that we're going to see Henry again as Superman? No. But I think the chances are perhaps better than ever that it's going to happen. And before I talk about, you know, uh, the, the, the potential exciting future for the character, I also want to just make one last observation on his assessments of the films thus far. Because it actually makes me feel like something that I've heard others say, and also like Claudia Balboa. Claudia, if you're still a listener to the show, I'm about to paraphrase you, and I hope I do right. But Claudia, who's a huge Superman fan, has said very nicely what I've seen other Superman fans say, which was that Man of Steel, even with some of the polarizing elements, was a great starting point. That, yes, it had some stuff in it that was a little problematic to some fans of the, of the character, but the fact that it ended the way it did, it kind of gave us a sense that in a sequel, we're going to see the more classic version of the character. You know, that yes, Man of Steel was a little bumpy and it was his first day on the job and there's stuff he has to atone for and lessons to learn, but overall, you know, welcome to the planet, Clark. You know, he, he, we are now going to get to see this a more grown up, more fully developed version of Superman in the sequel. But what happened? In my guesstimation, what happened was Snyder heard all the critiques that Man of Steel got in its third act for all of the destruction porn, for all the collateral damage, for the way Superman didn't seem to really care enough about saving the people of Metropolis, all that sort of stuff. I think he heard all those complaints, but misdiagnosed how to handle it. So rather than getting us a Man of Steel sequel that continued on the Clark that we saw at the end of the movie, a much more hopeful Clark, a much more, you know, a, a smiling Clark at a newly optimistic daily planet, instead of getting to see that Superman continue, we kind of took two steps back where Snyder said, okay, so you want to, you don't think we gave enough importance to the destruction caused by Superman's first day on the job? Well, how about this? We're going to make the entire movie about all of that darker stuff. And we're going to hold Superman's feet to the fire for all those deaths and all that destruction. We're going to show that the world is confused and upset with him. We're going to do all this. It feels like whatever creative direction they were hoping to head in after Man of Steel, they kind of took several steps backward for, for Batman v Superman. And thus, they went a darker way, and it became more of a Batman movie than a Superman movie. And his quote about BVS, where he says that, very much a Batman movie, and I think that realm of darkness is great for a Batman movie, that's his way of saying, we needed a more optimistic, positive follow-up to Man of Steel instead of suddenly bringing us back into this murky, morally complex territory where really Superman does seem like the villain. If you look at the stuff that happened in Man of Steel's third act, it is very, very reasonable that Superman would be hated by a great deal many human beings. And they focused on that very, very potently and very, very much in BVS. And I feel like 
Henry's comments about all this more or less prove that Claudia may have been right and that other Superman fans may have been right. That Man of Steel, while problematic, would have been saved by a sequel that tackled that in a more balanced way that still gave us the more classic, optimistic, hopeful symbol of hope Superman, while also, you know, tackling some of the trickier, you know, uh, thematic elements that were introduced in the third act and in Man of Steel. But instead, what we got was a full-on re-examination of Superman's place in the world. And I don't think Cavill liked that direction. I don't think a great deal many fans enjoyed that direction. And in many ways, it felt like a step backward. So I just kind of wanted to touch on that before we kind of talk about where we could go here. Because if we're talking timeline, right? On November 26th, 12 days later, Variety published this report that says that Abrams met with the studio about Superman and that even Michael B. Jordan met with the possibility of making a Superman movie and that in general, DC seems unsure about where to go next with Superman, that his future is still very much kind of up in limbo as they try to figure out how do we make Superman relevant. And, you know, I, I'm not going to go off on another insane tangent about how I think people overthink Superman and that if you think it's hard to make him relevant, then you're really missing the ball here. Because it's entirely possible to make a story about a hero who fights for good, for truth, for justice, who's genuinely noble, but who now lives in a world where morality has been turned on its head. You know, you, you go watch Superman versus the Elite to show us how you make a Superman who's both classic and relevant and has something to say about where we're heading as a people. You know, there's absolutely a way to kind of, you know, thread that needle and walk that fine line. And yet here we are, you know, with Variety claiming. By the way, that's important to say. Variety claiming. A lot of this stuff, this whole thing that they printed as an exclusive yesterday, which by the way is just laughable. Because it's all there was nothing in there that we hadn't heard already, you know. Aside from Michael B. Jordan apparently had a meeting with Warner Brothers about Superman, everything else in there is pretty much just kind of reheating old news, you know. Oh, really? Birds of Prey is going to be R-rated? We had no idea. Yes, we did. Oh, James Gunn's The Suicide Squad is going is probably going to be R-rated. Yeah, we pretty much knew that too, you know. It, it, it's anyway. That's uh, that's a tangent, but in Variety's report. They're the ones who make the claim that Warner Brothers is having trouble figuring out how to make Superman relevant. And, you know, personally, if they are, then it just shows you, wow, these people over there, these suits really just don't get how simple this can be. But if it's somehow true, then I think their best bet is J.J. Abrams. Because in actuality, and I've spoken about this before, but just to kind of recap, Abrams has shown he has a very particular set of skills. He has a very unique skill set when it comes to taking something that was once beloved 
that has now cooled off and lost some of its relevance and some of its creative direction and then making it exciting again and giving it a whole new lease on life. He's already shown this a number of ways, a number of times. You know, he did it with Star Trek. That Star Trek reboot in 09 was very successful and it brought in a whole new breed of Star Trek fan. You had people who love the original who can now see this and this didn't invalidate the original Star Trek. It found an alternate timeline. It created kind of like a fork in the road. So if you love your old Star Trek, great. Keep loving your old Star Trek. But if you want to you know, follow for, perhaps with a new spin on it, you know, Star Trek 09 gave you that, and that was very well received. And then, you know, things kind of started, you know, falling apart after that. But he relaunched Star Trek by finding that balance between what was once loved and what can make it loved again in today's marketplace. He did that again with Mission Impossible. Where with MI3, the movie may not have done so hot because at the time, Tom Cruise was a box office pariah because this is like after all the Katie Holmes and jumping on Oprah's couch and all this weird stuff that happened around the time that MI3 came out. You know, that movie suffered because of Tom Cruise's reputation, not because it was a bad movie. I challenge any of you to go back and watch MI3 right away with Philip Seymour Hoffman as the villain and show the way this film basically gave us the blueprint for all of these wonderful Mission Impossible movies we've gotten since with Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation and Fallout. That entire course was charted by J.J. Abrams in MI3 who has stayed on as a producer and whose bad robot is still calling the shots for Mission Impossible all these years later because what did he do? He took Mission Impossible, something that had been beloved. Remember, Mission Impossible's been around since the 60s. My dad grew up watching the Mission Impossible TV series. So he took this age-old beloved property and he found a way to inject it with enough new creative life that here it is, and it's doing bigger and better than ever. You know, after MI3, after a couple of years where Tom Cruise was able to kind of rehabilitate his image, all the Mission Impossible movies since have been hugely successful, and that's because of J.J. Abrams' guiding hand. And then, of course, the biggest example is The Force Awakens. And let's remember what I said an hour and ten minutes ago. With The Force Awakens... You had a film that was both a love letter to the old school fans and reminding them of the things they loved the first time around, but with enough of a new flavor to draw in today's audiences and create a new generation of Star Wars fans. So Abrams kind of knows how to thread that needle. He knows how to take something that's classic and make it feel new. He knows how to take something that had maybe recently worn out its welcome and put just enough of a fresh spin on it that now it's alive again. So I have the utmost faith that Abrams would be able to take Henry Cavill's Superman and despite some of the challenging stuff that's happened since 2013, with his you know, initial outings not necessarily being that well-received, and he can fix it. He can get Superman back on a track that will satisfy classic 
fans of the character, but probably also retain the ones who enjoyed where he was going under Snyder. He could probably find that compromise. I mean, maybe maybe I'm asking too much, or maybe I'm I'm thinking he's some sort of miracle worker and that is irrational of me. Maybe. But in my eyes, Abrams knows how to do this stuff. He knows how to reboot and relaunch without throwing out what came before. You know, because when he came in for Star Wars, remember, the most recent Star Wars films that had come out were the prequels. And those films were not exactly very universally loved. They were very, you know, they kind of took some of the glow off of Star Wars. And a lot of people who had grown up worshiping George Lucas suddenly felt like George Lucas had passed his prime and no longer was it was you know delivering the type of Star Wars stories that everyone had grown up loving. So he had to overcome all that. Abrams had to overcome the prequel trilogy to give us The Force Awakens, which went on to make over $2 billion and was this huge cultural phenomenon. So he knows how to even do it with projects that, were, that, that have been recently problematic. You know, with Star Trek, you, know, you, you could argue that, 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 the, that the property had lied dormant for a while and, and he was able to sort of kick it back into life. But with Star Wars, you know, the prequels were still very much in our pop culture psyche. And Star Wars was still very much alive in people's minds. And he was still able to take this recent history of the prequels being a big, you know, just, um, you know, uh, a mixed bag of negative emotions for Star Wars. He knew how to take that spin it on its head, and bring everyone back into the Star Wars fandom in a way that felt familiar, but also reminded them of what they loved. And even with Mission Impossible, he showed that again. Because MI2, directed by John Woo, had, had a lot of people thinking maybe Mission Impossible is not going to be some everlasting, ever-growing franchise because John Woo's MI2 was seen as very sort of overindulgent and over-stylized and very empty bubblegum, you know, pop-gummy. It was James Bond light with an American agent instead of being like this exciting new separate story about a team of people and this one very captivating leading man. So, you know, Mission Impossible 2 wasn't made a thousand years ago. It was made a few years before MI3. And yet he was still able to make an MI3 that fundamentally changed Mission Impossible from that point on. So this is all to say that if Riety's right, if Abrams did indeed meet with Warner Brothers and that he is indeed interested in making Superman, then I don't think there's anyone better suited at taking Henry Cavill's Superman and putting a fresh coat of paint on him and reigniting and relaunching a Superman franchise that will unite the fan base and make a lot of people very, very happy. And most importantly, by the way, if you're Henry or Dwayne Johnson, he can do it without restarting. He can do it without rebooting and throwing out the baby with the bathwater. He can literally take a franchise 
that is still active, but has gone a little eh, and bring it back to life. He's shown he can do it. And if I'm Henry Cavill, I'm on the phone with Abrams every day going, all right, so how do we get this done? How do we finally get to make our Superman movie? That's what I'm doing. But now we're going to wrap up on a general discussion about the DC Cinematic Universe as a whole, because all, you know, even though the variety thing wasn't this big jaw-dropping exclusive that they, you know, kind of acting like it was, there were you know, there are a couple things in there worth exploring. For example, over when it comes to the Batman, this is a new assertion that I hadn't quite heard of, but you know what? It makes sense now that the Joker, uh, you know, Todd Phillips, the Joker, has officially made over a billion dollars since we last spoke. Um, Variety says, if the Batman works, Warner Brothers and DC believe that any of these villains that are in the film could headline their own spin-off movies. Key cast members in both the Batman and Birds of Prey have contract options to appear in sequels and standalone films. So... This tells me that they have not yet abandoned the idea of that like Worlds of DC concept, where rather than one massive shared universe, it's more like each franchise has its own little cluster, its own little pocket universe. And it sounds like, I mean, this is the first I've heard that DC and Warner Brothers are, you know, are, are, are keen to develop spinoffs for, you know, Penguin, Catwoman, the Riddler, any of these multiple villains we keep hearing will be in the Batman, may get their own movies. So that's an interesting thing to think about. And Birds of Prey also apparently has that written into their contracts for some of these new characters that they're going to have, you know, that they could have sequels and standalones. So it looks like once again, even though there had been a lot of lip service put into this idea of we're only going to be telling solo stories from now on and no more shared universe and this and that. It does seem like Warner Brothers is very much still in the business of figuring out, okay, how do we bump out each of these properties? How do we take these, if they're a success, and then build on them? And I didn't realize that they were already looking to get their greedy mitts on Matt Reeves' movie. But that is something that Variety asserts. Variety asserts that DC and Warner Brothers are thinking about making solo films for the Riddler and Penguin and Catwoman, assuming that the Batman is a big hit and that these versions of the characters really resonate with fans now that Joker has proven that these villain-centric solo movies can do ridiculous business. Um, yeah, that's all, that's all very interesting stuff, isn't it? It's, a, it's also kind of like bittersweet in a way, isn't it? Because, you know, here in this sentence, it almost sounds like these two properties are being developed in conjunction with one another. You know, it says key cast members in both The Batman and Birds of Prey have contract options to appear in sequels and standalone films. And that's the thing. On paper, that sounds like there should be synergy here, right? Because The Batman and Birds of Prey all really exist in the same pocket of the DC universe. Like in, in the books, you know, Birds of Prey is based off of characters that are offshoots of the Batman mythology. So to me, that is the one 
weird, tricky bit of territory that we're heading towards, right? Because right now we're going to be presenting over the next two years, we're going to be presenting two, maybe even three versions of the Batman mythology without them really having any ability to interconnect. It's so wacky. And it's one of the weird side effects of everything that happened with Justice League and the creative kind of changing of the gears and dumping Snyder and all the stuff that happened. It has such weird ramifications, right? Because right now we have that Joker movie that just made a billion bucks. It's about Batman's most famous villain. It shows Bruce Wayne in it. There's perhaps the implication that there's more story to tell there and that that Bruce that we saw will, of course, one day grow up to be Batman you know, if they want to go the more traditional CBM route for it. And like I said uh, in the last episode, I was really surprised that the film didn't make it clearer to people that this is not actually a Batman prequel, that this is actually just its own thing. So if you're a general audience member, You've just seen one version of the Batman mythology. Then, now we're going to show Birds of Prey, which builds off of a very different version of the Joker and doesn't seem to have anything to do with Joaquin Phoenix. This actually harks back to Suicide Squad. So now if you're that same exact general audience member and you somehow end up in the theater to watch Birds of Prey... Now you're going, well, I just saw Joker a couple of months ago, and now I'm watching Birds of Prey, and oh, okay, so this is separate. Interesting. Okay, so I guess that is its own thing, and Birds of Prey is a continuation of Suicide Squad. All right, interesting. Now you're that same audience member, and you end up in the theater next year for the Batman. What happens then? <laughs> because now you're like, wait a minute, okay. I saw that there was one version of the Batman mythology in Joker that had its own Bruce Wayne and its own Joker in it. I saw Birds of Prey, which is a sequel to Suicide Squad. And in Suicide Squad, we had Ben Affleck's Batman facing off against Jared Leto's Joker, even for a fleeting minute. So really, the Batman of Birds of Prey is the Ben Affleck Batman, just like the Jared Leto, you know, the Joker of Birds of Prey is the, you know, the, the, the BVS Justice League, you know, it's the Batfleck, the, the Batfleck Joker. And now we're going to watch Matt Reeves, the Batman, which will seemingly have nothing to do with either of those. So here we're going to have all of these movies that are all set in some form of the Batman mythology that all have zero, I repeat, zero crossover compatibility, because according to most reports, you know, Matt Reeves' film will now officially stand on its own. So to me, that's just one of the interesting little, like, side effects of everything that happened in the last couple of years, that I'm very intrigued to see how audiences are going to take to it. And it's also just bittersweet as a fan to think, like, you know, Birds of Prey and the Batman delivering sequels and spinoffs, like... In an ideal world, had things not gone so astray, the Batman we'd be talking about would be Ben Affleck's Batman, the one where he faces off against Deathstroke, and you'd have to think that that film would have some sort of synergy, both with Suicide Squad, you know, that James Gunn's doing, and with Birds of Prey. 
But since Affleck flew the coop, or the cave as it may, now we have this entire situation where Reeves is basically starting from scratch and he's making a whole pocket Batman universe potentially that has nothing to do with the Birds of Prey pocket universe, even though that's connected to Batfleck and Suicide Squad and thus BVS. It's such a very confusing little conundrum here. And I'm very curious to see how they're going to try to tie all this together or how they plan on marketing these films in such a way as to say that, in theory, we could have three versions of Bruce Wayne and three versions of Joker alive in three different continuities that all play out on the big screen. <laughs> Just, you know, they're really going to test the sophistication of general audiences, or at least their patience and willingness to accept all of these different sliver pocket multiverse versions of these characters on the big screen. That's going to be very intriguing to follow. And, you know, something else that's intriguing to follow from that Variety report are some of their assertions about The Flash and about Green Lantern Corps. Because as I said earlier, you know, The Flash, as far as I know, was not one of the issues people had with Justice League. And considering they actually left the crumbs that Snyder had, you know, had, had built, had put into Justice League, the, the, the DNA for his solo movie by leaving in the father subplot and the, you know, the, the stuff with Billy Crudup and the way he got a job at the lab and he's going to try to free his father. Like, they literally set up Ezra Miller's movie and they left that in there. Unlike with Cyborg, unlike with Aquaman, they really left the foundation for The Flash intact in the theatrical cut. It really doesn't make a lot of sense that it's taken this long to get his solo movie going. But alas, here we are. You know, we know the, pro the, the, the production has been a little troubled. They've had a revolving door of directors. There have been different scripts different concepts for the movie itself. Is it a solo or is it a Flashpoint movie? You know, there's been all kinds of upheaval when it comes to The Flash, and thus you would be totally okay if you assumed that this Flash movie is now a pipe dream, that we're never going to get it. You would be totally a-okay thinking that because of all of these stops and starts, and yet, in Variety's report, they claim that The Flash is still very much happening, and that it's all they're waiting on is for Fantastic Beasts 3 to be concluded. Because according to, you know, Variety, the studio is very high on Ezra Miller's Flash. And they think he, you know, the, the, according to uh, Cinema Blend's version of the story, you know, they are keen on keeping this incarnation of the hero going rather than reboot him. So... I guess, you know, if you're a Flash fan and you, you at the very least, weren't offended by Ezra Miller's version of the character and think they could pull an Aquaman and make him exciting for you, or if you're just someone who loved what you saw already of Ezra Miller, I guess you can say that there's hope that this Flash film will eventually happen and that it will be a sequel you know, it will not be a reboot. It will be a sequel that sort of pulls an Aquaman for him. So, hey, that's pretty good news. And I guess I, I don't really have a lot of reason to doubt that. 
though I do have a reason to doubt their assertions about Green Lantern Corps. Uh, for those of you who missed it, you know, it was revealed that, you know, according to Variety, that Jeff Johns is still working on his script for Green Lantern Corps, and it's expected to be delivered by the end of the year. And this is despite the fact that there's apparently going to be a Green Lantern Corps series for HBO Max. And I just don't buy it, folks. When they announced that the Green Lantern Corps TV show or the, the Green Lantern series was coming to HBO Max, I pretty much assumed that was the end of the movie, that the movie was no longer happening. And that's not like a coincidence. That wasn't just a little weird hunch on my part. I was given a little insight, I want to say like eight months ago, that Jeff Johns' days on Green Lantern Corps were numbered. And it wasn't because it wasn't coming along well. It wasn't because of any outside factors having to do with perhaps the fallout of Justice League or anything like that. There was apparently, there was some stuff going on, uh, I guess, almost like personally behind the scenes where the studio was no longer sure that they would want Jeff Johns to be the one calling the shots. And that's why, fast forward, you know, eight months after that, when it was announced that Green Lantern had now moved to HBO Max and we were no longer hearing about the movie, I pretty much took that as confirmation that my friend who told me about that was right. That they're moving away from Jeff Johns for, for certain reasons that I'm not going to get into. And that his version of Green Lantern will not necessarily see the light of day. So that's how I interpreted it. So that's why I read Variety's assertions with a great deal of skepticism. I will be very surprised if there's both a Green Lantern core movie and a Green Lantern on HBO Max, which was already officially announced a couple weeks ago. So that's kind of where I'm at with that. <clears throat> I believe them on The Flash, I do not believe them that Jeff Johns is still actively working on a Green Lantern movie. And I guess we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. We'll see if that script gets delivered. We'll see, I guess, in the next year or two if the Green Lantern Corps movie gets off the ground. But folks, I'm telling you right now, I don't think it's going to happen. I think we're getting the TV series. And I think we should just be happy about that. Because as I said on the last episode, if it's going to be done at the HBO level of quality and care on HBO Max, if this is going to be given the type of support around it that they gave to series like Watchmen and Game of Thrones, then honestly, we should be thanking our lucky stars that Green Lantern is going to be an HBO Max exclusive. And uh, that's kind of all I have to say about that. And folks, that about does it for episode 103 of the Fanboy Podcast. It's a little longer than I had anticipated. It's been a while since I've delivered an episode that was almost two hours long. But what can I say? I had a lot to talk about. And for once, I had both the time and the energy to give these topics the, the attention and the energy that they deserved. And to bring it all back to how this episode started with J.J. Abrams, we don't 
have to agree with every single thing to love something. We have to return to nuance and acceptance. Keep that in mind this Thanksgiving as you attempt to be the change that you want to see in the world. Because that advice is not just for Star Wars. It's not just for DC. It's not just for Marvel. It's not for entertainment at all. It's for everyone around you. You don't have to love, accept, and agree with every single thing about someone you care for. You could still love them in spite of that and almost because of your differences. Friends, life is chaos. Be kind. Be grateful. Adios. Thank you.